3: Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days,
1: but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun.
3: You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
0: Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello psychoactive listeners. Today's subject and guest is a return to the issue of e-cigarettes and vaping. And as many of you know, you know, when I stopped running drug policy lines 4 years ago, probably the issue that most engaged me was the fight over e-cigarettes and juuling and vaping and tobacco harm reduction. And one of the reasons was, you know, so much of what reminded me about what got me interested in drug policy reform back in the late 80s. It seemed like the science and the evidence were all headed one way, but the politicians and the media and public opinion were all headed the other way. And so I began to delve into this area. And one of the people I learned a lot from is my guest today, Matt Cully he's played an important role in the vape world, the vape shop owner world. He's got a web channel which evaluates different vaping devices, which I think is the most popular one in the world. And he's also been involved to some extent in vaping activism. So Matt, welcome to Psychoactive and thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Ethan. I really appreciate it.
0: You know, I was thinking, I think the way we met was a little over two years ago. I had been on somebody else's podcast talking about this. You heard it. And you reached out to me and said, you know, let's talk. And so I gave you a call. And I have to tell you, I mean, I was scribbling notes like crazy because what I needed to understand first and foremost was how did this whole e-cigarette vaping thing evolve? Big tobacco was definitely not the pioneers in all this. Yeah. So
1: the e-cigarette was originally created by a guy named Han Lick in China. And there is some other evidence that like, you know, big tobacco companies might have been dabbling with some of this technology in the 70s and 80s, but they never brought a product to market. But anyway, Honlik's dad died from lung cancer. And so that was his motivation. He was also a
0: smoker. The whole idea behind this, and I think most of our listeners know this now, is that nicotine itself is not all that dangerous a drug. It causes dependence, but it doesn't cause cancer, got relatively low association with other heart diseases and things like that. Although some modest reason for concern, what makes cigarettes so dangerous is the combustion, right? It's consuming nicotine in a combustible form. And that basically what e-cigarettes are doing is is allowing people to consume nicotine in a form that's not burning, that's not combusting, that's not putting all these tars and other crap in your lungs, and that has dramatically fewer carcinogenic ingredients, you know, not zero, but dramatically fewer carcinogenic ingredients than does cigarettes.
1: You know, it was kind of a slow thing where it was a really niche internet grassroots thing where some of these devices started coming out of China. Most of them weren't very good. They didn't perform well whatsoever. And so a, a group of people in the US and in the EU kind of started taking them up and then modding different parts of them to make them better, creating a lot of their own e-liquid flavors that they thought were better than the ones you know coming out of China. And it, and it really started as a small niche thing on forums on
0: the internet. But the Chinese are the ones who keep making them. So there's this like interplay. Between the people in the U.S. and the EU on the one hand, and then the folks in China who are making it, or are people starting to really make it in a big way in the U.S. as well?
1: No, I mean the mass-produced products have always been made in China. Even you know jewels and and you know big tobacco's products, they're they're having those manufactured in China. There over the years, there have been smaller manufacturers in Europe and in the U.S. that, that usually make more of the advanced types of products something more niche, you know, the, what, what's called rebuildable atomizers, where you can uh, build your own coils and wicking in them. And uh, they make some of their own uh, mechanical mods, they're called. But a uh, majority of the products that you see out in the wild today are, are manufactured in China.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. And so what was your entry into all this?
1: Well, the first time I ever tried an e-cig was actually probably nine where there was this group of people i think they were traveling because i live in montana they were here in the summer and they they were in a bar and uh, walking around trying to get people to try these things called e-cigs and they had this little card uh that explained what it was i took a puff off of it never you know thought about it again but then in 2012 i got oral cancer squamous cell carcinoma and um you know, I can't 100% say that it was from smoking, but it was right where I laid the cigarette on my lip and I don't have HPV. So like the only reason for a 30 year old to get something like that is probably from cigarettes. So after trying to uh, uh, quit cold turkey multiple times, once I had the operation on the cancer, um, Vanessa, my fiance bought me an e-cig from the gas station. And that you know, got me Googling and doing more and more research. And I went down the rabbit hole and got on all the forums and, and uh, watched all the YouTube videos at the time. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I've, I've basically been stuck in this rabbit hole.
0: (laughs) I see. And and back in that day, I mean, Juul doesn't come around until 2015 or something like that. So back then, you said there were these kind of, what they called, sigalites or something, that were kind of not very effective devices, but then these new things began to come along, like you said, use the word mods. What exactly is going on there?
1: Yeah, you had sigalites, and the original mods were actually called that because people were taking things like flashlights and turning them into a battery holder for an atomizer. You, you basically have two parts on an e-cig. You have the atomizer, which is what you know heats up and, and vaporizes the liquid, but then you have the battery holder that is what's firing that atomizer, and sometimes that battery holder is more uh, complex- but uh, yeah, people were taking those early signal-like type devices, modding them, making more powerful battery holders and, and mods, what they called them, to uh, to make it perform better. And then the, the products just kind of incrementally got better from there. You had tank systems.
0: What, what does that mean, tank systems? That's where you put the flavor?
1: A tank system is basically something that you fill up with liquid. It's larger than something like a jewel pod.
0: I see. And the flavors, I mean, who's coming up with all all these, you know, hundreds of different flavors.
1: It started from the users. It was just a user-driven innovation where, you know, most of them didn't like tobacco flavor. People have to remember, tobacco flavor in e-cigs tastes nothing like a cigarette you can't mimic the taste of smoke very well, right? So, you know, no, people didn't like this fake tobacco flavor that, that started up appearing. And so they started dabbling with other, other flavors and, and making things they liked. And uh, a lot of them were just doing this DIY at home at first
0: hmm. And then the whole phenomenon of the vape shops, I mean, I assume a lot of these things people were just buying in convenience stores and things like that. But when do vape shops start to emerge?
1: You know, I can't say the exact time it was around 2010, 2011. And then, you know, by the time I started vaping in 2012, 2013, we even had one here in Montana where I lived. So, like, they, they were really growing uh, quite a bit by that time.
0: Uh-huh. And and these are, like, big chains or are these individuals?
1: Uh, there's There's a few larger chains, but... The overwhelming majority of vape shops are small business. You might have a guy that owns two or three in his county, you know. Most of the business owners are are ex-smokers and they kind of started how I did where they were looking for a way to quit vaping worked for them, they got really passionate about it and decided to open a vape shop in their area.
0: You know, man, I remember uh, about a couple years ago, there's a very good young journalist, Alex uh, Norcia, uh, who was writing for uh, Vice magazine, and now he's been writing for the pu- online publication Filter. And he did a beautiful piece, I thought, and it was about the vape shop owners and describing the, almost the harm reduction ethos that he found in these shops, that not like unlike you would find in a needle exchange program, except, you know, that that you had people who had stopped smoking um, by taking up vaping, and now they wanted to sort of spread this public health thing by setting up a shop that was for profit, but where you know there was a different sort of connection to the customer. It sounded like than one has in most commercial establishments.
1: Yeah, there's there's quite a bit more passion, and it is because a lot of people view this as a life saving product. They feel like it saved their lives, and they feel like it's saving their customers' lives, and they're also they they kind of become more than just a shop owner to their their consumers. They're kind of the guide, right? So you have a smoker that comes in, they're overwhelmed. They see all these different types of vapes, and uh, they have no idea where to start. And that that you know, a good shop owner or a good uh, 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 employee of that shop will help guide them through the process. And uh, it, it, you you end up kind of creating a bond with your customers, and the customers feel that way about the, you know, the person that sold them their first vape as well.
0: Yeah. You know, I walked into one of these shops uh, a couple of years ago. I think I was in in Manhattan Beach, California, and I just started firing 100 questions at the guy who ran the place and then sort of chatting up some of the customers. But I was curious about questions like, for example, you know, who prefers tobacco flavor vapes? Like, do older 40-year smokers, are they the ones more likely to favor it? Or do people, you know, prefer to switch right away to non-tobacco flavors?
1: you know what's so great about vaping is the fact that you have all that variety. Now, there has been multiple polls and studies on on what adults are vaping and I think it's safe to say that 85% plus of adult vapers are using a non-tobacco flavored liquid. But even with Um, those tobacco flavors, a good portion of those aren't just straight tobacco. It'll take a a, a tobacco uh, flavor that's made by a flavoring company. And then they'll add a little bit of vanilla and a little bit of honey or a little bit of uh, cherry or something. Um, And so a lot of those are more complex than just tobacco. And like I said earlier, none of these tobacco flavors truly mimic the taste of a cigarette. So when I first started vaping, I, uh, uh, figured that uh, because I was a Camelite smoker I would also like a uh e-liquid flavor that tasted like Camelite but you 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 do quickly get your taste buds back when you quit smoking first off and also none of these flavorings perfectly mimic a cigarette like I said earlier because you can't really mimic that that smoke uh taste it, you're not you know when you're smoking you're not tasting what it would be like to eat a a piece of tobacco you're sm- inhaling the smoke from it and the e-liquid flavors that are tobacco-based are quite a ways off from, from mimicking that uh, experience and and flavor
0: profile. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. Because, you know, I mean, now, you know, you often so often see that it's the flavors which are the issue because the kids like flavors. But what you're suggesting is that the adults like the non-tobacco flavors almost as much as the kids do.
1: I mean, yeah, as as we sit here, I'm vaping a watermelon peach flavor. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, you, like I said, you get your taste buds back. And also part of what makes vaping so successful is having that variety. I do like to switch to multiple different flavors in the summer. I like a more fruity tropical flavor, but then a lot of times in the winter, I like, you know, something that's a little richer, like some of the desserts or bakery types of flavors. And, um, You know, that's what's so great about it is everyone has different tastes. And uh, when they get sick of one flavor, they can find something else that uh, fits the bill for them.
0: You think most vapors, most people doing this sort of stuff are switching flavors and have a variety of flavors they like?
1: Well, I mean, there's no doubt about it that that majority of adults are using these flavored products. That's why you see in certain states or uh, cities that when they do ban flavors the vape shop there is not able to survive because uh majority of their business was with those flavored products and those consumers go to you know try to find it online somewhere or some illicit means to to get it because they don't want to vape the tobacco flavor.
0: So most people, going back to say between 2010, 2015, most people are who want to, want to get these things, they're buying them in vape shops or they're buying them in convenience stores or they're buying them online or all three, or how does it shake out?
1: It's all three. So back then, none of those gas station e-cigs were really that good. Usually what happened is, is people would initiate on those. It would be enough to spark their interest. And then they would walk into their local vape shop or they'd start watching YouTube videos and buy some stuff online. Now, that, that whole paradigm kind of changed when Juul came about because Juul was a much more effective e-cig. Um, but uh, back then, it was kind of like the, the, the gas stations and convenience stores were just a stepping stone into the vape shops.
0: We'll be talking more after we hear this ad.
2: If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby, with over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations. Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents,
3: ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. (laughs) That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was... Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elaje Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports.
0: There's that initial sort of disruptive technology that emerges 10, 15 years ago with the first generations of the e-cigarette devices, the mods and all that. And then Juul, you know, really does something that is a whole new level of stuff. So just explain to our listeners what was unique about Juul.
1: Well, the magic sauce with Juul was that they used nicotine salts. And so what that does is it gives for a smoother hit. So a Juul has, I think it's 56 milligrams per ml, or they call it 5.6% nicotine, which is much higher than a lot of other uh of the refillable types of products that came before it, or even some of the Sigalikes that came before it. And because it was a smoother draw, people were able to handle that higher nicotine uh, content with freebase, It would be so harsh on your throat that uh, it wouldn't be enjoyable. So that was really, it, w- it wasn't the device itself. It wasn't the way they, they built the atomizer inside or the battery. All that's pretty basic. Although they gave it a cool form factor that we didn't really see. You before. Mean the then. whole
0: thumb drive type look.
1: Yeah, but uh, really the number one thing is is the nicotine salts. That's what makes uh, Juul effective.
0: So in other words, to deliver a higher amount of nicotine, which would be more satisfying to a consumer, although also more potentially dependence-causing, but to do it in a way which hits the back of the throat the way smokers like, rather than to feel really rough um, the way it would have with a high nicotine yield in the old-fashioned uh, models.
1: You know, it's not that... Uh, puff off of a jewel is giving you way much more nicotine than a puff off of a cigarette they wanted to get it close so that they they mimic each other closely
0: mm-hmm. so basically one jewel pod is equivalent to one pack of cigarettes
1: roughly there's yes I mean it's very close there's been some debate on that but yeah I would say that that's a that's a good estimate
0: yeah although I think in in the EU or the UK or whatever I mean the jewels are limited to a lower level of nicotine
1: yeah and that's the that's the kicker with a nicotine salt when you do at 20 milligram, there's almost, it's almost too smooth. So a smoker or, or a vapor still likes a little bit of a throat hit. They want to feel that, that vapor going into their lungs, but with a 20 milligram nicotine salt, it's so smooth that it almost feels like nothing. And I think that's part of why, uh, it didn't take off as well in, uh, those lower nicotine concentrations.
0: So when Juul comes along, I mean, for smokers who've been trying to quit, who have tried cold turkey, didn't work. Maybe they tried a patch or a gum. It didn't work. You know, are there folks who have been smoking and they find that Juul works like nothing before and even works better than the old mods, the old open tank systems?
1: Yeah, it definitely helped some people that were struggling, especially the types of folks that smoke two packs a day that, that are really used to a high amount of, of nicotine. You know, none of the, the vapes out there beforehand really satisfy them, it helps them quite a bit. And I think that uh, it fits a spot in the marketplace. I never felt like I needed that much nicotine for myself. I'm very satisfied vaping uh, 12 milligram out of a little pod system that's refillable. But, uh, you know, to eat, everyone's different. And uh, it was another harm reduction tool out there for people. and uh, And it worked quite well.
0: And how do the vape shop owners, uh, you know, feel when uh, Jewel comes in? I mean, is that cutting into their sale of all these other devices? Uh, do they see it as a welcome addition to what they're selling? It was a rude
1: awakening for some of them, and some of them disliked it. Some of them t- sold it because when you have a bunch of customers coming in asking you for the Jewel, you need to start carrying it. Um Now, you know, I think a lot of people's takes on them is a little more nuanced. It's not that they dislike the products. They dislike some of the things Juul's done over the last few years, uh, especially with their lobbying. Like Juul's been for flavor bans in some states. And, uh, you know, that's where I kind of stand, too, is is I think it's an effective product. It's helped a lot of people. I have nothing against the Juul, but um, I'm also not fond of some of their their actions that they've uh, taken the last few years.
0: Okay, so let's jump forward to like 2018, 2019 here. So JUUL sort of takes off, and it starts to become immensely popular among adolescents. And not just adolescents who had been smoking, but also adolescents who had never smoked before. And it starts to freak out their parents, oftentimes in middle, upper-middle-class you know, neighborhoods, you know, parents who had never smoked, hadn't smoked in a long time, and think that JUULing is just as bad, and their kids are saying they can't quit, and all this sort of stuff. And and then you have, you know, in late 2018, you know, Jewel, which had a year or two before had also engaged in a social marketing campaign, which appeared child friendly, which seemed really boneheaded at the time. And they tried to tighten it up, but they'd already done that damage. Late 2018, they sell 35 percent of the company to the tobacco company Altria. Right, for $13 billion, giving Juul a $38 billion valuation. And at that point, between the sale to Altria and the explosion in e-cigarette use, and especially Juuling, among young people, it seems like everything turns. I mean, Scott Gottlieb, who's the head of the FDA, and who been sort of supportive of tobacco harm reduction, seems to be pissed off. Members of Congress, politicians start to turn, anti-vaping organizations emerge. I mean, it just seems like this shit hits the The fan. And then there's this moment in 2019 when two other things happen. One is that the activism starts to cause all the politicians to start proposing bans on flavors and maybe even bans on all e cigarettes. And the other thing that happens is this e valley, e v a l i, where the media starts reporting. About a few, you know, many people landing up in the hospital, and some dozens of people landing up dead because they're vaping, right? And and so this all comes as a shock all of a sudden. Not just Juul, but I think the broader industry is on the defensive. So, I mean, Matt, you're smack in the middle of this at that time. So, just describe how that felt from where you were sitting in a central place in this whole vape world.
1: Oh, it was that, 2019 was a really tough year. <laughs> And then, of course, follow that up with COVID, you know, in 2020. But uh, when Scott Gottlieb and the Surgeon General started calling the teen vaping issue an epidemic, that really changed the game. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, while there was a lot of teen experimentation at the time – if you really dive deeper into the numbers, it's way more nuanced than that. So, you know, they, they really touted this, look, uh, over a quarter of teens were vaping. And so everybody had this imagery in their head that there's, you know, one quarter of U.S. teens are all just nicotine addicts and um, you know, the future is screwed. <laughs> but but really, that was just, you know, 27, 28% that tried vaping one time or more in the last 30 days.
0: I had the same experience in the whole marijuana thing for decades, right? That so the media headlines would say the sensational number. And when you looked at the details, that's how many teenagers had smoked once in the last year or maybe once in the last month. And the daily number of consumers would be very low, a few percent. But that would only be in the small print. And I saw the same sort of media coverage happen as you're describing in the, in this vaping world. You know, there's a recent article out uh, by Ken Warner, the former dean of the University of Michigan School of Public Health, you know, basically saying that when you hold all the vari- other variables constant, like which teens are risk-oriented, which teens this and that, what you find is that there's this whole notion of, of the gateway hypothesis that kids will start vaping, you know, who had never smoked and then switched to smoking, just there's almost no evidence to support that sort of stuff. So it's clearly an issue, right? Parents are Seeing this stuff, but it's being exaggerated and blown up by the media in much more substantial ways.
1: Well, and one more uh, thought to throw in on that too, though, is it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy like what we saw in San Francisco, where once you do ban vapes, you see teen smoking go up and they'll try to say, look, vaping was a gateway to smoking. No, it's just you took all the access of other safer products away and more people are smoking in your city, teens and adults. So um, you know, that's that's another another way to look at it as well.
0: Yeah, I know a very good published study by a professor at Yale, Abigail Freeman, that looked at that San Francisco data and found that when San Francisco started banning all that stuff, it's exactly what you said, Matt, you know, smoking went up, you know, a kind of counterproductive result of a semi-well-intended uh, ban, from you know, coming from a purportedly public health perspective.
1: Yeah. And as far as adults go, um, you know, I think a good portion of adult vapors don't really keep on top of the the advocacy stuff and what's happening in in vaping news but the the ones that do are very very passionate um you know i'm on the board of a, a organization called casa it's consumer advocates for smoke free alternatives association and we have uh, over 250,000 members and uh, when there's something you know like when trump almost banned flavors uh, back at the end of 2019 uh, quite a few people uh, Stood up and played their part. So, uh, you know, there's there's quite a few adults that are are pretty passionate about uh, making sure that they have access to these products.
0: Yeah, I just CASA. I think that's what C A S A A. Correct. Right. But when the Holy Valley thing comes along, that must have been infuriating, you know, a lung disease that people realize almost instantly is associated with illicit, tainted THC cartridges, you know, which some knuckleheads have been cutting with vitamin E acetate, which can be safe to consume orally. But when you light it up, it splatters in your lungs and puts you in the hospital, right? But you see the U.S. Center for Disease Control and others and the politicians using this, vapor. Vaping disease associated basically entirely with illegally produced THC cannabis vapes using it as an excuse to crack down more on nicotine vaping and nicotine e-cigarettes. Seems to me they should change the name of the thing. I mean, mean, E-Valley stands for E-Cigarette and Vaping Use Associated Lung, you know, uh, uh, injury. I mean, they should take out the E from it because people who vape cannabis don't say I'm vaping cannabis from an e-cigarette. The phrase e-cigarette is almost only used to refer to nicotine. So it's fundamentally disingenuous and in fact dishonest. And the fact that CDC and maybe FDA and others and politicians who do know better keep propagating this myth and keep saying, well, we're not 100% certain that there might not be a nicotine e-cigarette thing. I mean, I just find that fundamentally dishonest. And and and, and it also is responsible for people dying because by obscuring the really accurate evidence there and by letting people who are vaping THC know right off the bat that this was about, you know, illicitly produced THC vape cartridges, not about, not about uh, e-cigarettes with nicotine. I mean, people did not take the proper precautions in the marijuana vaping area so i I mean i you know obviously you my audience can hear me getting passionate about this but so much of this reminds me about the dishonesty the kind of reefer madness stuff we saw with marijuana now the same sort of reefer madness mentality being employed against vaping
1: and and you know how it is too that you know the, the first headline is what sticks, and so the damage is done. And even though we started to see more and more articles that would throw in the, you know, it looks like this is probably from vitamin E acetate, it was just too late. And so even to to you know today, there's still plenty of people that think uh, nicotine e cigs are what we're killing people. And uh, while CDC backtracked somewhat, it's not as if they did it very loudly.
0: Well, Matt, let me ask you here about, you know, the demographics and politics of this issue, right? So I pulled up a chart earlier. And, you know, if you look at the states which have the highest rates of smoking... They're all what we would call red states, right? It's West Virginia is first, Kentucky, Louisiana, Ohio, Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, Indiana, Oklahoma, and then finally hit Michigan, a sort of purple state, a North Carolina purple state. And then you go to Wyoming and South Dakota. So the states with the highest rates of smoking are basically red states, right? Then you look at what are the states with the lowest rates of smoking? And at the very bottom is Utah. Right. That's a conservative state, but it's because of the Mormons and the whole anti-smoking thing. But right from there, it's California, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Hawaii, Washington, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Colorado, Virginia, Illinois, Oregon. And then you finally get to Minnesota and Nebraska. Right. So the, 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 the dozen states that are the lowest in smoking are except for Utah are basically blue states. Now, I'm guessing that when it comes to vaping, those would probably be similar. Yeah, correct.
1: It it, it does seem to, that there is quite a few more vapors in red states, be, and because they started out with more with more smokers, obviously, but also um, the red states have been friendlier to vape as far as regulations go too. So there's more vape shops there as well. Um, you know, in some states like Washington, California, they were really flourishing with vape shops about six, seven years ago. But uh, a lot of those have shut down. The regulations have gotten harder to, uh, to navigate. And uh, so that, that's another reason why I think we see less vapors in, in some of the blue states as well.
0: Well, there's also, when you look at the rest of the demographics who smoke, you see that the highest rates of smoking are among Native Americans and uh, Pacific Islanders. The lower rates are among Hispanics and Asians, right? And where you see that it's higher than the average is generally among white Americans. And especially, you see lower income, less educated white Americans. So you look at a group which is, you know, disproportionately smoking at larger numbers and probably Probably disproportionately interested in vaping or vaping, right, and also disproportionately supportive of Donald Trump,
1: yeah, I would say
0: so. So, the, and by the way, the other group we left out of this where the smoking rates are the highest of all um, is among people who suffer from mental illness and especially schizophrenia and some other things, and also people with anxiety disorders where you see remarkably high rates of smoking. And it's baffling to me why the National Association of Mental Illness, you know, is not a vigorous supporter of tobacco harm reduction. But this, this gets us into the moment with Trump in 2019, right? And as I understand the story, you know, his wife Melania comes comes home one day and she's a bit freaked out because uh, their son, you know, they, they think he or his buddies are vaping, and uh, and she yeah. says, you know, you're the president, you should do something, and Trump goes out. And and says, okay, I'm going to you know, I'm going to crack down on this. And he calls his head of health and human services. I think his name is Azar 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 tells him to do something about it. Um, And then the politics start to get more interesting because in a way he's addressing an issue that means something to his political base. Yeah. And I think.
1: Obviously, Melania played a part, but this is something that I think Azar wanted quite a bit as well, and he was pushing it. And then when Melania came on board, I think that's, that's probably around the time Trump was like, OK, let's do this. And, you know, like he did plenty of times as president. He uh, spoke very soon on it, right after he had the meeting on it, said he were going to ban all these flavors, and then didn't really understand all the different political implications or the backlash that might happen. And, uh, you know, that's when he started to kind of get wishy-washy and and go back and forth, and then eventually backtracked and only did a partial ban on just uh, pre-filled pods, uh, products like uh, Jules Mango.
0: I saw a video of the uh, meeting that Trump held at the White House um, on the issue of vaping and what to do. And, And I was absolutely amazed Because everything I've seen about Trump, I mean, I I have unlimited contempt for this human being. And yet there he is in the White House, and he's got a meeting of two dozen people coming from all perspectives on this issue. And he's going around the room and asking people what they think. And it was almost like this Obama-esque moment by Trump. And you could see he was torn. He didn't know what to do. You know, he had his wife, he had his head of health and human services on the one hand, but he had the base. And it was, you know, small entrepreneurs and all this sort of thing. And he's kind of twisting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, it was really a fascinating moment to see him kind of, you know, all of a sudden get all gung ho on a, on a public health message and then, uh, and then kind of, you know, uh, get confused about it.
1: Yeah, let's not get it too twisted here and give him too much credit because behind the scenes, there was a lot of politics going on. And so there was two different camps. There was the camp that thought that, you know, pissing off vapors was going to lose votes, especially in really tight States like um, Michigan, where he had only won by, by 10,000 votes in, in 2016. And then there was the camp that was uh, for the ban that were worried about um, pissing off the uh, um, suburban moms. So while, you know, I, yes, it it was really nice that he did that. And, 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 He was he did seem to be interested about the subject. The the reason Behind the scenes, I believe, while, while there was a lot of going back and forth, it was all politics.
0: Yeah. Well, I saw some poll that suburban soccer moms care about this, but that vapors can be one issue voters. And in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Ohio or Florida, you know, that there's enough people um, who could actually, you know, say, we like you, Mr. Trump, but we're going to stay home if you screw us by banning vaping. And, you know, the, the whole slogan, we we vape, we vote right? I mean, that was a kind of powerful moment. And then I recall, I think you were there, Matt, right? There was a demonstration outside the White House in November, 2019.
1: Yeah, I, I was one of the speakers and, and helped organize that. I, I think it was effective. Uh, it got media um, attention. Some of them made fun of us, which was fine. But the whole point was to get media media attention. And at the time, uh, Trump's helicopter flew right over our, our rally. And uh, you know, there was a lot of information after the fact that he that he saw us as he was leaving the White House that day. And even in it's been written in some books. He was talking a lot about the vaping issue behind closed doors, trying to figure out what to do and uh not wanting to piss off the vapors, worried about the quote unquote vaping vote and and stuff like that. Then when Trump softened on it, you know, and and uh acted like he cared about the vapors and decided not to ban you know all all the flavored products he was going to. I, I think that that made it even more of a political issue than it was. And and now, uh, hmm. while the left hasn't always been friendly to vaping, I think it just. It made it that much worse, if I'm making sense.
0: Yeah, no, I think it does. I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, you and I have discussed this. It, it, it's so galling for me that this issue of the banning on flavors or the banning on all vaping is so much being led, oftentimes, by Democrats and progressives, and that's a community that I consider myself part of, and that overwhelmingly I'm generally supportive of. But you know, the same political figures, whether you know around the country, who were my allies on legalizing marijuana first for medical purposes. And then for all adults who are supporting needle exchange and harm reduction programs and naloxone to reduce overdoses, all of that stuff, these are the same folks who oftentimes have been leading the charge to ban e-cigarettes or either to ban all flavors or everything but tobacco flavors. San Francisco sort of becomes the epicenter of this, but it's happening, you know, it happened in Michigan. It happened in a range of other states in, in the Northeast as well. And, you know, some of that was playing off all the fears that happened around the e-valley thing, which turned out not to be a, about e cigarettes and nicotine. Um, but it, it, I mean, in a way, I, I analogize it. I sometimes look back at the, you know, the, the if you look historically at the progressive movement in the uh, 100 years ago, early 20th century, and, you know, they played a pivotal role in advancing good things like food and drug safety and, you know, child labor laws and better working conditions. Yet at the same time, they also are the ones who led the charge for banning alcohol and for alcohol prohibition in the 18th Amendment, yep. you know, which in a way, I mean, to me is the the progressives can get most of it right, but sometimes they can get something radically wrong. And that's in believing that a prohibitionist measure is somehow going to be a good progressive measure. And I see the same thing happening today, where I generally support a lot of what the progressives and Democrats are pushing for on the economic scale and a whole range of other fronts. But in this front, I just think they're going ass backwards. And, and what actually bothers me a bit is that, you know, I, I believe that my political allies really understood harm reduction deep down. But in point of fact, you know, what it makes me suspect of is that maybe they just don't get the core principles, right? That they came to the right place on drug policy reform for reasons that had more to do with politics, with racial justice politics, with anti-incarceration politics, but that in this issue, you know, I mean, all those things go out the window, either because of the fear about their kids or because big tobacco is playing an ever greater role in the vaping world.
1: Yeah, I mean there's multiple factors that that muddy the waters uh, here. And as you know, I consider myself a progressive also, but like you said, they have kind of a checkered past when it comes to prohibition and uh sometimes they try too hard to save people from themselves. What I think is really muddying the waters here is the big tobacco influence, but even if it wasn't big tobacco, just other big corporations making money off of, you know, nicotine. And what I think progressives and Democrats have to accept here is, is that when you legalize drugs, whether it be cannabis, you know, nicotine, maybe down the road, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see some others. There are going to be legal businesses that are going to step in. And some of them may get very large. And, you know, I know that like in the marijuana world, they're trying to mitigate that somewhat. And, and I applaud that, but you know, once once federal legalization happens, you're going to see some big players pop up. Um, and so you just have to deal with that. And you, But you need to still regulate them, hold them to account when they do something wrong. But you have to accept that people are going to make money off of this. And so I think that that's what kills it for them is that they look at this now as these big corporations preying on their children. You know, they they hate the businesses, but then they also don't want to criminalized drugs. So like, what do you do? And to, I, I think you have to accept the lesser of two evils in this case, and that is legalization.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you see this, you know, a few decades ago, the kind of tobacco control was united in opposing big tobacco and trying to reduce smoking. And then when all these tobacco harm reduction devices emerged, e-cigarettes and a whole range of others, um, you see that community split right, where one group begins to say harm reduction is the way to go, that, you know, for people who can't quit smoking, that e-cigarettes and these oral products, that these are all harm reduction things that can really dramatically reduce both smoking and the negative consequences of tobacco and nicotine. And so from a public health perspective, we have to embrace harm reduction. And then there's another group, right, which has got the upper hands right now, which essentially is saying, Our number one objective is to put a stake through the heart of big tobacco, right? And then if allowing big tobacco to sell e-cigarettes and these other things is going to keep them alive, then we have to be against it. Right. And they're exercising enormous influence. I mean, you know, Michael Bloomberg is a major donor, hundreds of millions of dollars going to try to ban, you know, vaping and flavored vaping and all that sort of stuff, uh, giving money to the CDC's foundation, giving money to the WHO's foundation. So you see a kind of, um, you know, where the original public health objectives and ideals of tobacco control have almost become secondary Um, Because of this passionate, you know, opposition to big tobacco. And as you said, that dovetails to the broader liberal view of kind of, you know, multinationals, big industry is inherently bad. So therefore, if they might benefit in some way, you know, we got to oppose it.
1: Well, just one thing to say about tobacco control you're not quitting the way they always planned for you to quit so you're kind of you know a wrench has been thrown into their plans these people have had these plans for decades right and they've seen that the smoking rates lower even before vaping came along and so they think oh great you know now nicotine is here to stay even with the pro vape researchers they still show if you listen to sometimes or read some of their literature they still show these kind of puritanical glimpses of themselves where their end goal really still seems like to eradicate nicotine completely like yes we we were for e-cigs as a uh, harm reduction quitting tool and then eventually they'll get off the e-cigs and then you know new generations just won't use any of it so we we need to only let the smokers vape and make sure the kids never get it and eventually the smokers are going to die off or they're going to you know quit you know vaping and, and nicotine's going to die with them. So even if you look closely with some of these people that we both like, they, they still are a little more puritanical than probably you or I are on the subject where, you know, I think nicotine's here to stay. I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, how it's ingested may evolve, but uh, we need to stop thinking of it as like winning the war is uh, by eradicating nicotine. In my mind, winning the war is, you know, saving lives, right? Regardless of what what they're using.
0: Yeah, no, I, mean, I think you're right. If you could snap your fingers tomorrow and all of the 35, 40 million smokers in the U.S. and the billion plus smokers around the world were to switch to e-cigarettes or other tobacco harm reduction devices, it would probably be one of the greatest advances in public health in human history Absolutely. because these devices tend to be, you know, 90, 95 percent less dangerous than smoking cigarettes, right? A world with dramatically fewer smokers, even if it involves dramatically more vapors, you know, is a much healthier world with people living much longer lives. But the fact that it's going to put money in the hands of big tobacco, the fact that people are going to be dependent upon this, the fact that many people are going to become dependent while they're still teenagers, that all raises moral, you know, ethical issues and all this sort of stuff. But I think it blinds us to the bottom line public health thing, which is what's most going to save lives and extend lives. And I think, you know, I mean, I think that is ultimately where the debate's going to go. The other part is that some of the folks in harm reduction think that if we can reduce smoking enough in this country you know, from 13% of the adult population down to 5%, you know, well, then let's ban cigarettes or let's cut the nicotine in them to so low that nobody even wants to smoke anymore. But I think if you do that, you're going to see a black market emerge in cigarettes that could well dwarf the black market we've seen with heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, with all the mass incarceration and global black markets and, and organized crime and all that sort of stuff. And I think that many folks in tobacco harm reduction don't take take that possibility seriously enough.
1: Yeah. I've corrected quite a few people that have said something like, let's ban cigarettes. That's absolutely a horrible idea. And you- you and I both know what communities that's going to disproportionately affect and who the first people are going to be arrested from it. It would create a huge black market. There's already multiple states in this country that have massive cigarette black markets because of uh, onerous regulations.
0: Well, you know, I think about it. I mean, if we go to the point of banning cigarettes, I mean, you know, remember the case of Eric Garner, you know, who the cops, you know, landed up, you know, killing. Um, this guy was selling Lucy's in New York, you know, individual cigarettes. And you could see the Eric Garner phenomena increasing dramatically. We know that when more Markets become more illicit like that. You know, it presents opportunities for people who don't have better better chances in poor communities, in poor black and brown communities. But I'll tell you something else. I also think there's another possibility here, which is that given the extent to which smoking is disproportionately concentrated oftentimes in poor white Trump-leaning communities, the ones who don't trust the government, the ones who are gun-friendly, the ones who don't buy the stuff on COVID, all of this sort of stuff, and who basically believe that smoking is a basic human right, and on some level they're right about it being a basic human right to put in your body what you want, I could easily see the emergence of black markets in which you begin to see white nationalist you know, organizations playing an ever bigger role, and traffic in this stuff, growing it, you know, smuggling it you know, and, and really seeing themselves as not just making money illegally, but also doing this in a way that almost feels political. So I know I'm kind of, you know, jumping into the future with this thing, but if you look at where the country's going in terms of polarization and radicalization and what's happened with COVID and the anti-mass stuff, I could easily see an overly aggressive tobacco policy playing into that mix.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of outcomes that, that could come from uh, from a cigarette ban and, and none of them look very good. And, uh, you're much better off allowing cigarettes to exist but having a government that gives their citizens the proper information and that's what we see in the UK the UK has some dumb regulations they have a nicotine cap they have uh, a, uh, um, some regulations on the size of tanks they allow there's some silly stuff there but People are switching to vaping in the UK and sticking with it because they also have that support from their government, telling them, the, giving them the proper info, telling them, you know, uh, that it's harm reduction, telling them, you know, the Royal College of Physicians is still doubling down and saying uh, vaping is at least 95% safer than smoking. That means a lot. So if we had something like that in this country, um, it, you know, you'd see a shitload more vapors than we have today.
0: Let's take a break here and go to an ad.
2: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids' podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby, with over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations. Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app,
3: Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations
1: I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
0: So Matt, let me ask you this: In early mid October, the FDA basically allowed uh, its first e-cigarette um, to be sold. View it's called Views Solo, right? It's a not very popular device, but it's opened up the door right? And now you and I are talking the day before Thanksgiving, so it's possible that the FDA begins to give approval for Juul or Enjoy, which is one of the bigger of the independent companies, or some of the other companies to sell their products as well, um, you know, without giving them a stamp of approval, but basically saying we've determined that they're safe enough and that the benefits to adults in terms of smoking cessation, cessation exceed the possible harms to young people in terms of uptake of vaping. But it's also important to note that two years ago, you know, the FDA gave a kind of qualified to green light to SNUS, right, which is that oral nicotine thing that was enormously successful in Sweden and Norway in reducing smoking rates among adult men to the lowest in the world. And then, you know, last year in July, um, in, in July 2020, they gave a kind of qualified green light to Icos, which is, a, you know, a heated tobacco product. So like an e-cigarette, but it, it works somewhat differently. So we see some of these other products being approved and maybe more down the road. They're all harm reduction devices. They all present dramatically fewer risks to people's health than does smoking. Some of them may be even safer than e-cigarettes. What I'm curious about is when you go back in, in your vape shop world, I mean, are, are the snus products, the oral products, there's something called Zinn, which is a nicotine pouch that people are also finding useful to stop smoking. Do those all fit into that mix? Are they all integrated or are they seen as another world?
1: Um, some shops sell that, some don't. You know, myself, I'm a a thr to tobacco harm reduction absolutist. Like, I'm for any products that's going to help, you know, reduce harm, regardless of what 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 someone wants to use. Um, I've seen more and more. A lot of these vape shops that were once maybe predominantly vape shops are now almost like a head shop where there's also selling some, you know, CBD products and they're also selling snooze and and maybe they're even selling cigars, which are combustible and, and, you know, uh, could cause health problems to people. But I think a lot of them have had to span out just to keep their doors open. Um, You know, obviously E-Valley and everything hit them hard and uh, it scared people off. You had a lot of people that were, we're already vaping that went back to cigarettes once they read the, read those original headlines. And then you had uh, smokers that were, would have become vapors that didn't become vapors um, because of that. And so they, they have had to expand and, and they'll, they'll carry different, type, you know, more various products now than they did before.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, Matt, that brings up the question. So, you know, we haven't really talked about very much THC and cannabis and CBD, but obviously that's a hugely booming world. And we see cannabis, uh, you know, both THC-based products and CBD products and others emerging, you know, but also in edible forms and drinkable forms and patches and gums and you name it, right? I mean, how much interaction has there been? Uh, I, I mean, I think, for example, you go back historically, the guys who created Juul, uh, Adam Bowen and James Monsey's, I met those guys 10 years ago because they had created packs, which people were using for, for vaping um, uh, cannabis, yeah. right? It was one of those kind of heat, not burn things. It wasn't an oil at that point. It was something where you heated up the cannabis to a point short of burning. So it was a relatively less problematic way to consume it. And I, I remember talking to those guys and not even fully appreciating that they were working on this nicotine stuff that was going to become their major business and then bring them all sorts of grief, right? But I was also at visiting, I spoke a couple years ago at the Emerald it's one of these uh, cannabis uh, conventions. And and I remember being struck. I went to a panel on cannabis vaping, and there was virtually no discussion of the nicotine vaping. And I oftentimes hear almost nothing about cannabis when I go to the tobacco harm reduction things. Now, you're sitting in a more sophisticated place about this. Is there a growing marriage between these two?
1: I think there's some crossover. I know of of some different uh, manufacturers that make e-liquid and then they also got into the hemp space and they're, uh, you know, making different uh, cannabinoids and and stuff like that. Or or there's some people that, you know, ended up uh, having their own cannabis farms. Um, I do feel like, you know, nicotine has definitely become the outcast of the drug world. (laughs) And, uh, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people in marijuana kind of want to to make sure they're separated from us because we've had so much scrutiny over the last uh, few years. But there's there's definitely some crossover there.
0: Well, on the consumer side, I mean, can one use a, a jewel to vape cannabis oil?
1: No. Well, the thing is cannabis oil is a lot thicker than most e-liquids. You could, I've heard of people doing that with the Juul, but it probably isn't going to wick very well. And, uh, you know, you have to kind of jury rig it and open it up, you know, crack open the, the pod, which you're not supposed to do and try to fill it with that. So. While the products are very similar and there is some crossover, as far as the atomizer goes, um, usually they need to be more specialized for a certain uh, liquid.
0: I mean, look, there's good reasons to avoid the marriage of these two industries. You know, a buddy of mine, Steve Bloom, who's been a journalist in the marijuana field for a long time, for High Times and now um, for Celebrity Stoner, I think it's called. But he wrote an important piece. It's almost a mea culpa. He said, you know, he gave a lot of publicity to the emergence of blunts, right, of people hollowing out these kind of mini cigars and filling them with candles cannabis or combining cannabis and tobacco in a way which was very common in Europe because people would smoke hash there and they would roll it in tobacco. Um, But he was saying, hey, everybody, stop doing that because there's you know any number of people who mostly like cannabis then started mixing it with tobacco and began to develop a tobacco dependence that way so let's keep these worlds separate you know and let's not have people we don't want to see people vaping nicotine and cannabis together not a good idea and you know you see in Canada where you have federal legalization i think not just but big alcohol but even big tobacco have begun to buy into the cannabis companies for all sorts of obvious reasons so i mean do you think that this marriage or merger between the two is sort of inevitable?
1: Well, I mean, I think you're talking about two different things here. Like, obviously, it's problematic to mix nicotine and THC together, because if it's a THC user that doesn't have much experience with nicotine, they could potentially, uh, you know, create a a habit for that nicotine. As far as the I don't think that the two industries are ever going to merge.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this other possibility that people talk about, which you're already hearing reports of, which is people using vaping devices to take not just cannabis or nicotine or CBD, but even to begin to take other illicit drugs. And there are obviously some significant benefits, um, especially to the extent that the newer devices control the amount, right? So some of the vaping devices, I think both in nicotine and in the cannabis area, you know, they can limit how much you're getting in each each puff, right? And they can sometimes automatically turn off after you've taken a certain number of puffs. So there's a harm reduction element to these, the, not just in terms of getting rid of the smoked and burnt matter, but also in terms of controlling and keeping track of consumption that could play a positive role. Um, yet, on the other hand, might make some of these more risky illicit substances even more appealing. Yeah, have you heard anything yeah, about I that Yeah, I mean, stuff? I think...
1: I think some of that is kind of, you know, it's from the same camp that tells people to be careful of Halloween candy because it might be mixed with drugs or something.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I think some of it is just kind of fear mongering. Um, you know, I, I've never encountered people saying, hey, you know, I, I I got a THC card off the street and somebody put some fentanyl in there or something like that. But I have heard about scientists, like you, you, I think you were alluding to talking about potentially using vaping as harm reduction for some other drugs. So like I, there was an article recently about, you know, somehow implementing vaping into crack use and could it potentially be a safer delivery method for crack users than, you know, what they're using now. So, I mean, there might be something to that, but um, obviously that's something that like, shouldn't be something that just somebody's experimenting with in their basement. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about safer crack use, it's a real thing. I remember a couple of decades ago when we were doing grant making and one of the things that some of the harm reduction projects were doing was giving out these little um, kind of rubber, I think it was rubber, that, that crack users could put on the pipe because one problem that people had with smoking crack, apart from the consequences of the crack itself, was that the pipe, the crack pipe would heat up so much that they would burn their lips. Uh, yeah. And then the burnt lip would become a point of transmission for, uh, you know, a sexually transmitted disease or other sorts of things. And so by putting a kind of, you know, just like the way you put on a hot coffee cup, something to keep it from burning your hand, the same idea, but one could actually see that working in this area. Well, look, Matt, last question here. Um, So the politics of this thing. You know, I've had the opportunity because of my contacts sometimes to give some of the Democratic politicians I know an earful about tobacco harm reduction. And it's clearly unwelcome knowledge to many of them. Many of them just don't even know better. They're going along with it. And we see this is a political issue where the Republicans are kind of mixed and divided and some are anti-vaping, but others are pro-small business and others are pro-individual rights and all this sort of stuff. Um, But among the liberal and progressives, even broad swath of Democrats, you really see just this amazingly backward thinking. And I'm curious what's going to change that right now. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, mean, I mean, you're in Montana, you know, you still have Democratic politicians there. Uh, I mean, what's your sense? Is there any hope on the Democratic side for opening up their eyes on this stuff?
1: I think there's hope. I've I've had conversations with quite a few staffers and politicians, and a lot of them are very receptive behind closed doors, and they they end up getting it. But you know they don't word it this way. But the bottom line is is like, are you willing to stick your neck out and spend the political capital to stick up for vaping? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And and yeah. and so everyone's just kind of following along, and they're keeping their mouth shut because uh, there's no upside there for them.
0: Yeah, I mean Dick Durbin, you know, I mean he's you know he's a deputy leader of the in the US Senate, good guy, been good on a lot of drug policy reform issues, but he stands up there and says my parents died, you know, from smoking, that's why I'm against vaping. And I'm thinking, damn, I mean my dad died prematurely, and his pack-a-day habit almost certainly played a role in his premature death at the age of 58. But for me, I imagine that there's a chance my dad might have been able to switch from cigarettes to vaping, and that might have significantly extended his life. So I'm kind of baffled by the Durban's of the world, and, and, and kind of pissed off, too. It does seem to me that when you have almost a half a million Americans dying each year prematurely from long-term smoking, and when we now have these sort of technological breakthrough innovations that can dramatically reduce those numbers. Um, this is an issue which, you know, progressive Democrats, all Democrats and any Republicans who still say they believe in science and in science-driven policy, you know, just ultimately... Well, needs and let's not breaks. forget how
1: stigmatized smokers, people who smoke are. I mean, it's, we don't talk about it often, but they are very stigmatized. And I think sometimes... People have even more uh, sympathy and empathy for someone when they overdose on another drug than a smoker dying from, from lung cancer
0: it's a new permitted stigmatization. I mean, I'm in a world of illicit drug harm reduction drug policy reform where we talk about all the harms that result from stigmatization, but in a way now, people who smoke and even to some extent people who vape, those are the people who it's now okay to stigmatize, okay to feel no compassion for, and people literally will make the argument, you know, better that five smokers die ten years prematurely than that one kid gets addicted to vaping nicotine. And that sort of trade-off, you know, in the same way that that the war on drugs, for a long time, was justified as sort of one great big child protection act. The reason we couldn't legalize medical marijuana, legalized we couldn't medicalize, we couldn't legalize marijuana more broadly. The reason we couldn't allow needle exchange, methadone, naloxone, you name it. Well, I mean, that same, you know, the great big child protection act is legitimizing, you know, allowing huge numbers of people to die, who pre- presumably, you know, you would think that decent-minded, progressive, good Democrats would care about.
1: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Yeah.
0: Well, listen, it's been great catching up with you and talking about with you. And I, I really, I think our, our audience will have learned a lot from this. It's obviously a world that many people interested in drug policy don't know about. Um, but it's a type of, uh, you know, form of harm reduction that can save more lives than all the illicit drug harm reduction put together. So hopefully, I mean, my, one of the things I'm trying hard to do is to get more and more of my allies in illicit drug harm reduction and drug policy reform to embrace tobacco harm reduction as part of their agenda and to try to prioritize it, because many of them get the principles, um, but it's been a tough issue for them to fully embrace.
1: Definitely. And thanks so much for having me on. And I I know, you know, Vapors have really appreciated you taking interest in this subject over the last few years.
0: Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belouzian, and a special thanks to Abhivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beattie. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive@protozoa.com at or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Tune in next week for my conversation with Stephen Jackson. One of the better ball players in the NBA for many years, outspoken about the issues of marijuana in sports and longtime friend of George Floyd.
2: I went the long road to get to the NBA, you know, trying out for 18 teams, breaking both of my feet, dealing with death to my older brother and a lot of different things that can have you mentally disturbed, you know, and as a kid dealing with so much. The cannabis and basketball helped me escape. So when I played basketball, I was able to escape from the world that was going on. As soon as I leave the court, I'm back to the real world where the only way I could escape and keep myself sane was cannabis. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now
0: so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.
1: We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I
3: screamed.
1: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever
0: you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
2: Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret.